Well, if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, I, I got up here and, and taught from these same two chapters, chapters two and three. Uh, so today is a continuation of that, uh, that concentration on these important chapters. And I want you to recall, I hope you'll recall, that I gave you a doctor's office illustration to start. I said, imagine that you're in a doctor's office. Imagine that the doctor is looking you in the eye and the doctor's telling you that there's some serious problems with your health. That if changes aren't made immediately, it's just going to get worse and that things are, things are dire. And then I, and then I said, but, but imagine that your doctor in saying this to you is also saying to you, and the reason this is happening is all your fault. This has to do with your unhealthy lifestyle. This has to do with your bad habits. You've put yourself into this predicament. You're the one to blame. So I want us to keep that mindset as we're going into this passage, because again, that's, that's what's being done here, all right? And, and also remember that I said last time that, that the message might be very offensive to us. And I kind of made a, I think I made a pretty strong plea there, like, you know, if you get offended, hang in there, don't walk out, right? This is going to be hard hitting. And interestingly, after, after I got done preaching that a couple weeks ago, uh, I had a couple different people approach me and say, uh, did you think that was really that offensive? And, uh, and I was like, you know, not really. Like, I, I kind of felt that when I left. Maybe that, that felt a little harsh at the beginning. That felt a little unnecessary at the beginning. But the reason why is because I've, I've had this entire, these two sermons in my mind, this entire, you know, approach to these two chapters in my mind. So I was thinking things that I had not yet said last Sunday, all right? And I think I'm going to end up saying them today. I know I am. So I just want to say that, that little disclaimer, that's still in effect, okay? It's still in effect. And you might feel a little bit more today. So we're going to read again from chapters 2 and 3 of Micah. And, and, and recall that the, the big issue here is that God is, is chastising His people. He's rebuking them through His prophet Micah and the reason why is because they have been deeply entangled in idolatry. They have become deeply entangled in idolatry. The accusation was that they had been shaped by the surrounding culture, the, the, the surrounding secular culture, the, it, really a, a pagan culture. And they were so shaped by that that they were living like that culture in ways that they had completely lost their distinctiveness as the people of God. They were not the holy people in the midst of a, of a sinful world that they had been created for, that they had been called out to be, that God had commanded of them. They were unfaithful to all of that. They had forsaken His righteous laws for the ways of the, the world. And the result of that was that they were going to face consequences. That was, that was the judgment here that was coming out in this text. The superpower empires that were around them, the ones that they, that they had been so enamored with looking like, were about to turn on them in a very serious way. The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the big superpowers were coming for them to conquer them, to capture them, to exile them, to leave them impoverished. And God wants them to know that that's not just going to be some political event that happens. That's not just some, some historical turn. This is my judgment. View the things around you rightly. This is my righteous and just judgment against your apostasy, your idolatry, your unfaithfulness. So what we're going to do this morning as we go back to these chapters is we're going to find out how did they get here? How did this happen? How, how did they end up in this sad spot? What led to their hypocrisy? What led to their ungodliness? And the answer, as we're going to see, is rooted in the corrupt preaching and teaching that their religious leaders had been giving them. They'd been led here by bad leadership by bad preaching particularly so we could say this things went bad if we were going to use kind of modern vernacular things went bad because the church went bad 
Now, the reason I gave the disclaimer last week and again this week about the likely offense of this sermon is because I think as we look at this text, and we're talking about a people who lived you know, almost 3,000 years before us, looking at this and looking at them is, is going to be something like looking in a mirror. As we consider the state of God's people at this time, I think and we, if, if, we, if we examine it rightly, we're going to have to say, boy, we see a lot of similarities with what's, what we see in God's people now. What we see in ourselves. And so it's a wake-up call for the church. This is a wake-up call, and it will be uncomfortable. Okay? It's going to be uncomfortable. But remember this. We said this last time. I'm going to repeat this again. God is in the process of making everything right. That's His intent, right? He's in the process of making everything right. But to get us there, He's got to show us what's wrong so it can be dealt with. So again, you're in the doctor's office. The doctor's looking you in the eye this morning and saying changes have to be made. Changes have to be made. And by God's grace, He'll help us. If we listen, if we repent, and submit to His ways. So listen again to the accusation that God brings against the religious leaders and the assembly of His people here in Jerusalem and Samaria. Micah chapter 2, verses 1-5. to Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it, because it's in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. In that day they shall take up a taunt song against you and moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people, how he removes it from me. To an apostate he allots our fields. Therefore you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. This is what's wrong. This is what's going on with my people. You've, you've bought into this, this worldly system that's oppressive that treats the poor and the, and the marginalized and the needy with disregard. You're, you've, you've, you've taken on this greed and the ways of thinking of the world that's so not what I made for you, not what I called you to, not what I've given to you. And as a result, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be disaster. Now, I want you to listen to their response. Because this tells us a lot about their spiritual blindness and their ungodly state of mind. Look at verse 6. The people reply to Micah, Do not preach! Thus they preach, as one should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Micah, don't talk like that. Don't preach like that. Chapter 3, verse 11. We see it again. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Now do you see what's happening here? Micah as the prophet of God is standing in the midst of the assembly of God's people and he's saying, This is messed up. Look around, people. This is, this is wrong. This is not good. You've abandoned your identity as God's people by going after the idols of the world around you. You've forsaken the Word of God. And therefore, you don't look any different than the world around you. Your behavior is no different. And God is not pleased. He will judge this apostasy. And in hearing that, they say, don't preach like that, Micah! Your, your, your depiction of God as an angry judge? Not welcome here. 
God is not like that. He's not mad at us. Nothing bad is going to happen. In fact, God is with us. Our form of religious practice and thinking is is more in tune with God than yours, Micah. So get your, your, your judgment preaching out of here. Nobody wants to hear that kind of preaching. So in short, they think Micah is the one who's wrong about God. They think Micah is the one who's wrong about the kind of preaching and practice that God desires with His people. But God's Word through Micah says, no. Chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. God's Word to them is saying, no, your preaching and practice have brought disaster upon the assembly. In other words, the the church as you know it, Israel, Judah, is about to crumble. It's going to die. What we see in Micah's chapter 1-3 through is a description of the idolatry that had overtaken the people of God. This is the how did they get here. And, and, and it should serve as a learning tool for us. If you ever want to read a manual on how to kill a church, this would be the one to read. Okay. And as I said before, this is, this is, this is challenging. It's going to push on us because I believe it holds a mirror up to the American church in our own day. I really do. What's as tragic as it is remarkable is that the pictures of idolatry that we see here in the first three chapters of Micah hold that mirror up though in different ways. What we'll find out here is that that this mirror is kind of pointed in, in, in a couple of different directions towards the people of God. There's this, there's this sort of turn towards the, the more theologically liberal among them and then back to the theologically conservative. There's this turn towards what we might call the, the progressive, and then back to the, what we might call the orthodox, the, the left and the right. Okay, It, it, it sort of points in, in every single direction as if to say the word here is for all of you, my people. There's not one group of people that's better off than another here, even though you've, you've got different things that you're running after. There's idolatry everywhere. Now, we've, we've covered some of the most common and crippling idols of both camps over the last couple weeks. And I, I want to I remind us of that because we were in Micah and then last week we were also in Hosea and they both give us a glimpse as to what was going on. These are two prophets who are writing into the same group of people basically at the exact same time. So I want to put back up for you this timeline on the screen and show you. Okay, Micah is down here. Micah is writing to the southern kingdom, primarily of Judah, although his, his prophecy addresses also this northern kingdom of Israel. Remember that the kingdom is split after Solomon's reign. This was again a result of their sin. God said the, the kingdom's gonna be taken from you, and it splits into two. We've got the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah. The capital here is Jerusalem. The capital here is Samaria. Micah's writing at around 735-ish B.C. Hosea, at the same time, is writing to the northern kingdom. So what we're seeing in both of these two prophets over the last two weeks is that it's the same time and basically the same people. Alright? Now, let's start with Micah chapter 1 because I think that's kind of pointing us to the northern kingdom primarily. Also where Hosea was speaking into. So if we're going to say, again, sort of modern vernacular, let's, let's turn the mirror a little bit towards the, the, what we might call the theologically liberals among them. All right. Again, highlighted primarily in Samaria, the northern kingdom. What was God so displeased with? Micah chapter one. Look back. Look at verses one to seven. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning both Samaria and Jerusalem, both the north and the south. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. 
the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place, and He will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Remember we said the high places representing the, 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 the altars of their idolatry. He's going to tread upon those altars of idolatry. And the mountains will melt under Him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All of this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? In other words, is not Samaria this capital city where we're seeing all of this sin really concentrated? And what is the the high place of Judah in the southern kingdom? Is it not in Jerusalem? Are we not seeing in the capital city there this concentration of the idolatry and sin that God is judging? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Now listen to verse 7. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all of her idols I will lay waste. So here we're getting a very specific accusation. There's idolatry here. You've made these places of worship. You've made these carved images. You're worshiping idols. You're not worshiping me. And then we get even more of a description of what kind of idols. For from the fee of a prostitute, she gathered them, these idols, and to the fee of a prostitute, they shall return. So the, the, the indictment against Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, had to do with an idol worship that had this strong link to prostitution. You can see that there in verse 11. Now remember that, that Joey led us in a study of Hosea last week, and Hosea was writing to this group of people in the north, and you recall that uh, the picture of prostitution played a big part in that prophetic message. Hosea, or, uh, yeah, Hosea was, was called by God to marry a prostitute named Gomer, right? And the reason why God had him marry this prostitute was to be a picture amongst the people of his relationship with them. And what does he say to them in Hosea chapter 2? I'll put it up here on the screen. He says, I will punish her, his people, for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. So he's saying, this is your idolatry. You've, you've worshipped the Baals. These are, this is a pagan god, and I'll describe that a little bit more. But, but it's like prostitution in that you've, you've, you've dressed up and you've run after a, another lover. Now Joey taught us that Baal was the pagan god of fertility. He was the Canaanite god of fertility. He was considered to be their, their, their most high of, of the gods that they worshipped. And worship of Baal was strongly linked to gross sexual immorality. And associated with the worship of Baal as this most high God for these Canaanite people was also the worship of a goddess named Asherah. Asherah was considered to be the fertility goddess, like he was the fertility god, And although she was believed to be Baal's mother, get this, she was also his mistress. So you can kind of see like this this weird sexual perversion stuff going on in this worship already. And she was worshipped by engaging in ritual sex. So there's this strong link to this prostitution and sexual immorality in this idolatry that God is calling out amongst His people. Now you might say, why sex? Why, why is that a part of their idol worship? Why, why would that, why would ritual sex be something that they would do? Well, remember what an idol's for. An idol is something that you look to in an, in an act of worship to give you what only God can really give to you. You're, you're looking to something or someone to be a replacement for the place that God alone should have in your life, and you're looking to them to provide for you deep things like your, 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 your provision or your identity or your security to, to fulfill those needs and desires that you feel are deepest to your being. To worship an idol is to say, I have to devote myself to this thing and depend on it for what I need. 
or depend on it for what I want. Now think about this. The Israelites are wandering in the desert under Moses for 40 years, right? So this is back quite a ways before the time that we're in with the days of Micah. But, but they're, they're with Moses. They're wandering in the desert. And God is saying, I'm going to give you the promised land. And what was the promised land? It was the land of Canaan. It was this place that was in, already inhabited by these Canaanites. He's saying, now you're, you're acting just like them, right? And so they, 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 they go over and they see this land, and this is the most fertile soil they've ever seen. I mean, it's, it's green, it's beautiful, it's lush, and, and, the, and they're reminded that God said, this is a land flowing with milk and honey. They see that. And, they, and as they cross into that, what the Canaanite religion teaches them is that, is that Canaan was saying all of this lushness and beauty and fertility is a result of Baal. That's why we worship Baal. And so you can imagine there's a temptation for God's people to think, okay, well, God said, no, no, I'm the one who's going to provide this for you. But if the people here are, are already experiencing that and, and they're worshiping this Baal God, maybe we should kind of hedge our bets a little bit and, and, and consider worshiping him too. And you say, well, how do you worship Baal? Through sex? Oh, okay. So if sex then becomes this chief means of obtaining fulfillment, you could, hear, you could just hear them say, okay, well, let's make sex a primary object of our attention and our focus. And by the time we get to Micah and Hosea's day, we see that this practice of ritual sex and religious prostitution was so ingrained in Israelite culture that there were open-air markets for buying and selling women. Sex trafficking was happening in the open here, right? Remember in Hosea, he goes and buys back Gomer in the midst of, a, of an open public square. That's how bad it had gotten. We're, we're not talking about this happening in Babylon or Assyria. This was happening in God's people's city. And it wasn't just limited to the northern kingdom. Baal and Asheroth worship became a regular practice in the southern kingdom of Judah as well. If you looked at 2 Chronicles 33, you'd read this. For Manasseh, and Manasseh was this king who reigned in Judah about 30 to 40 years after the time of Micah. All right? But when he's reigning, he rebuilds the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down. And he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So this wasn't just happening in Samaria. It was happening in Jerusalem. So what are we to make of this? Micah is saying this. He's saying God is not at all okay with His people accepting and adopting the sexual promiscuity and the sexual behavior of the surrounding culture. And he's not okay with it because it is a form of false worship. If you're using sex as a means of finding your identity or security or prosperity, or if you're just using sex as a, as a, as a means to, to sort of uh, fulfill your, your, your lustful gratification, you're abandoning God as the source of all of those good things. Not to mention you're abandoning his purposes for sex. He made that for a different reason. And you're not just sinning against him. But look, at, look around. Look at what's happened to your society here. You've increased the oppression and injustice in the world. So they were subject to God's judgment because they had rejected the very clear instruction of God's world, word and rather adopted the prevailing philosophy of the day. Now I want to just put this up here so you can see this. It's clear. This is the law. This is back in Deuteronomy. This is what God says to His people from the get-go. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live, and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws. 
and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws, for the person who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And what are the laws that he gives to them? You say, There's, these, are the, these are the cultural sexual practices that are going on all around you. And in my law, very clearly, I'm saying, don't do that. They're prohibited. I'm not going to read all these, but write them down if you want to and look them up. Like this is God's, it's so clear what God is saying. Don't be like these cultural practices that you see. Here's what I want you to look like instead. But the preachers and the people don't want to hear this. They say, don't preach like this to us, Micah. God's not angry with us. Nothing's going to happen. So that's primarily what was going on in the northern kingdom. But Micah's prophecy now turns in chapter 2 to address a different issue, this time speaking back down towards Judah. Now again, he's addressing both Israel and Judah, but this one is specifically given in Jerusalem, in Judah, Micah chapter 2. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it's in the power of their hands. They covet fields. They seize them. Houses, they take them away. They oppress a man in his house and a man in his inheritance. So again, we looked at that in more detail two Sundays ago. So I'm not going to go into all of it again. But let me recap. The problem in Judah, the problem in Judah in the southern kingdom, as well as in Israel, was that the people of God, particularly the wealthier and the more privileged among them were complicit in the systems of injustice and oppression that had so devastated the lives of the poor and the marginalized in their own cities and rural communities. And, and, the, and, the, and the kinds of systems that they were complicit in were economic and social by nature. Now again, while this was certainly happening in the northern kingdom, Micah was speaking directly to the southern kingdom when he gives these words, particularly into Jerusalem, and that shift is significant. Here's why. Let me go back to the, the, the timeline that I put up here. All right. So again, after the reign of Solomon, you see that the, the ten tribes split up to the northern kingdom, the true tribes split to the southern kingdom, and if you follow the, the gray line, you see that there's a, there's a trajectory of time before they're conquered. The Israel line is short because in 722 BC, Assyria conquers them. That the judgment is executed earlier in the north. In the south, it takes a little bit longer before the Babylonian kingdom is, is coming in to, to conquer them and their judgment is exacted. So you say, what's the difference? Why was one shorter and why was one longer? Primarily, the difference is this, that, that the northern kingdom after Solomon had all bad kings. Every single king up there was pointing their people towards idol worship. There wasn't a single king in the north who followed after the Lord. In the southern kingdom, though, there were a few good kings. There were a few kings that, that put away this idolatry and, and brought about reform in, in the people of God there and, and pointed them back to right worship of Yahweh. And so they were still on a trajectory of decline, but there were these pauses along the way that sort of prolonged it. Because there, there was some repentance. There was some faithfulness that was going on from time to time in the southern kingdom. So let me put it this way. Again, modern vernacular. You could say the southern kingdom was the more religiously conservative of the two kingdoms. If, if the northern kingdom is sort of on the left, well then the southern kingdom of Judah, we could say maybe they're more on the right. <laughs> but what's God saying to them? He's saying, it's not just the sexual idolatry I'm concerned with. I care deeply about the political and economic idolatry that's overtaking you as well. Your pursuit of greed your pursuit of power at the expense of the poor and the marginalized. It's not okay. It's a great offense to me and a clear violation of my word again. Cultural, social injustices that were common in the 
culture around them. And God's law says, no. Don't oppress. Care for. Love. Don't, don't, don't stack on debt and make people in, in these economic holes that they can't get out of. Grace, mercy, freedom, right? And, and so God is saying to, to the, the conservative among them, you too have become like the pagans. And this was a serious problem. It's a problem for lots of reasons. I'm just going to highlight three of them. They should be obvious, but they're worth highlighting. Here's the, here's the fundamental one. God's people were in violation of the first and most fundamental of God's commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Whether it was the people in the north or the people in the south, they're all guilty of this. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's saying, you've turned after all these cultural idols. And as a result of that, by getting the first commandment wrong, what happens? All the, all the, the rest of the Ten Commandments, they sort of just fall in line. You get the first one wrong, you're going to get all the other ones wrong. And that's exactly what happens. If we look at the Ten Commandments, you can see as you go down the list, pretty much all the things that are, they're being accused of in chapters 1 and 2 here of Micah and in the book of Hosea are violations of these things. So that's the first the first thing we could say in terms of just being a serious problem, the second one is this. It's in explaining why we have these Ten Commandments in the first place. God's commands are not arbitrary. God doesn't just say, look, I just want you to be different for the sake of difference. So whatever the culture is doing, you do the opposite. It's not arbitrary. What God is doing in the commands here is He's saying, this is good for you. I am the Lord your God. In other words, I am the one who made you. I, I am the one who understands what life is supposed to be. And the sin of the world around you has taken everything of mine and they've, and they've turned it upside down and backwards and they've run the other way and my law is, is good and then it's calling you back to what you were made for. This is good for you. This isn't arbitrary. This is rooted in my love. This is rooted in my desire for your best. I think sometimes as Christians, we can look back at the law and we can kind of throw it away as this, this, this sort of uh, unhelpful, unattainable thing that just points us to our need for Jesus. And we kind of walk away from it without recognizing, no, in the law, we actually find the prescription for what good life looks like. That in Jesus Christ, who fulfills the law, not does away with it, we're now given the ability to live out the principles of the law because in Christ, we're redeemed and renewed to live in a way that's good for us. It's not just good for us individually, but it's good for others. If you violate the law, it harms you and society. Look at Micah Chapter 2, verse 7. At the end of the verse, God says this, don't, don't my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Thirdly, is that the people had lost their missional distinctiveness. They were supposed to point the world by living in a way that shows the goodness of God. They were supposed to point the world towards Him. And if they just look like the world, then that missional distinctiveness in the world is gone how'd they get here here's how they got here they got here because they had accumulated for themselves teachers who didn't know the word of god and who had become corrupted by the surrounding culture their their priests their prophets their teachers corrupted, didn't know the Word of God. Look back at chapter 3, verse 1. And I said, Here, you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. So he's speaking to the leaders here. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off of my people and their flesh from off of their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin 
from off of them, breaking their bones in pieces and chopping them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. You're supposed to know justice, but you're devouring the people. You're killing them. Verse 5, Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead My people astray, who cry peace, right? They're saying, don't, don't preach like Micah. We're going to cry peace. Nothing's going to happen to us. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against Him who puts nothing in their mouth. So in other words, when, when you, uh, you know, give them money, when you sort of shore up the power of these people, they'll tell you anything you want to hear, but when you don't, you'll get nothing from them. Verse 9, again chapter 3, Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. There's a cyclical phenomenon at play when this happens. We see it today too. You get corrupted clergy who are not only starving the people of God's Word, but also devouring them by abusing them. Abusing them by their own greed. And you also have a people who are clamoring for their teachers to preach to them only what they want to hear. Preach this, not that. Affirm us in our lifestyle. Affirm us in our worldly desires. Tell us God is pleased with our behavior. Don't call it sin. Look at what Micah says to them in chapter 2, verse 11. This is a very damning statement. He says, I will surely assemble you all... Uh, I'm sorry, verse 11. I was reading the wrong verse. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. He would be the preacher for this people. <laughs> Ouch. That's how they got here. And Micah's prophecy to them is a stark warning of his righteous judgment against their apostasy. Chapter 2, verse 3, Therefore says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. Chapter 2, verse 10, Arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Chapter 3, verse 4, Then they will cry to the Lord, but He will not answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Chapter 3, verse 12, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Can you see why I said earlier that I'm afraid this passage serves as a, mer a mirror? A mirror for the American church. I've been heavily burdened as I've contemplated this text over the last several weeks. I, I, look, I look within, and I look around, and I see a church that is deeply entangled in idolatry. I see a church that is deeply entangled in sexual idolatry. We have significant portions of the church who are addicted to pornography. We have adultery and divorce at levels that rival the secular world. We have young Christian singles who are engaging in premarital sexual activity at alarming rates. We have whole church denominations splintering over disagreements about clear biblical teachings on sexual ethics. There's churches, and a, and a lot of them, a lot of them who, who organize and identify themselves chiefly 
around their open sexual tolerances. Even in our own city, just, just two advertised examples of this that I came across just this week. There's, there's one church, and I, and I say church loosely because this really, this really saddens me. They're advertising on Facebook with a, with a Venn diagram graphic. You know what a Venn diagram is? You know, different circles that all kind of join together, right? And, and the Venn diagram visually proclaims them to exist at the intersection of queer, bar, like tavern, and church. And they say, this is who we are. The queer, queer, queer bar church. There's another local pastor who wrote a book recently, which again, I saw advertised this week, where she advocates for pre- and extramarital sex, multiple sex partners, polyamorous lifestyle, and lots of other forms of sex outside of marriage and says they are and should be seen as holy. Now, when someone attempts to speak prophetically, with God's Word to challenge that kind of sexual sin in the church, they're often met with great resistance and opposition. Don't preach like that! We don't want to hear that. God is not against us. God is love. Surely no disaster will come upon us. If Jesus were here, He'd be hanging out in spaces like this. So get your repressive preaching out of here. Preach this, not that. Now we might say, and, and I say we, and I, I assume that we're, we're probably more of a conservative church, right? We might say, well, those are just churches on the left. Those are the liberal churches. They've long ago abandoned the gospel for cultural acceptance. And maybe we could say, well, that, that certainly seems to be the case. But when we look to the churches on the right, we have another problem. Where are the conservative churches when it comes to the care of the poor and the marginalized in society? It's the conservative churches that tend to be far more individualistic, materialistic, and socially unconcerned. And in fact, if someone speaks prophetically with God's Word to challenge this lack of social concern, they're likely to get chastised for preaching a so-called social gospel. And will say, don't preach like that! God's not like that. God's on our side because we've got orthodox doctrine. We, we believe and preach the Bible. We stand against the culture all the time. Well, if that's the case, then we have to ask this question. Have we forgotten that orthodox doctrine ought to lead us to the most fundamental practice of true religion? Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know, it might be helpful if I, if I just give a little clarification of, of what's meant by the term social gospel or what's meant by the term social justice in, in, in its relation to the gospel. What, what oftentimes people who say don't preach like this are saying is they're saying if you take social action and make that a measure of your salvation or an or a, a indication of salvation such that you take faith and add to it an, an additional work that's required for you to be right with God, that would be a repudiation of salvation by faith alone. Now, to the extent that that's true, I would say we should agree with that. We're not, we should not add to faith alone as the way in which salvation is applied to us. However, I think what's important to say then is 
But don't forget where faith then goes. Right? Faith without works is dead. Faith without action that is now in line with the ethics of Jesus and the call of God on His people to to live out the goodness of the law is no faith. And I think oftentimes you get people who are so allergic to the word social or so allergic to the words social justice that they forget that there's, 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 a, there's a place for that. There's not just a place for that. This is full of it. Why are we so allergic? I think it's because of idolatry. Why don't we see more pure religion? Because to follow after the commandments of God and the ethics of Jesus would mean that we might have to sacrifice our idols of comfort, greed, and privilege. It might mean that we would have to follow in the example of Zacchaeus, who not only repented of his sin against God, but also sought to give restitution to the oppressed people his sin had so deeply impacted. And that costs a lot. How did we get here? Second Timothy 4, which was read right before the sermon, I think points the way to how we got here. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We have to hold the mirror up in Micah. And we have to say, this is us. The American church, this is us. Both liberal and conservative. Left, right. We're sick with idolatry. And we need to hear the message of the prophets before it's too late. You know what 1 Peter 4 says this, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And God too has a message about preaching. God says, preach this, not that as well. And he sends the preacher in Micah to preach in a way that is honoring to him and good for the people. And I will end with this. I just wanted you to see it. It's right here in the text in chapters 2 and 3. The first one is found in chapter 3, verse 8. Look at it. Chapter 3, verse 8. But as for me, this is Micah speaking, as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So the first thing that God is saying, this is the kind of preaching I do want you to hear and listen to. It's a, it's a preaching that is in the power of the Holy Spirit to bring conviction of sin and repentance. That's what Micah is saying. When, when, when you preach in the power of the Spirit, you're pointing out the sins of the people. This isn't ear-tickling. This is uncomfortable. We don't, we don't always want to hear this, but we need to hear it because God's Word will always correct us. Always correct us. And again, remember the very specific sin that God is seeking repentance from here in Micah. Sexual idolatry. Economic, social idolatry. Right? These are, these are deep sins. Why is it so important for us to, to, to be willing to sit under preaching that hurts? Because when you sit under preaching that hurts, it points you to the solution. If you aren't convicted that you need a Savior, there's no preaching of a Savior for you. 
And that's the second thing then. Preaching the hope and deliverance for those who trust in and follow Christ the King. Chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you, God says, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. Those who, are, who, have, who have not been guilty of this oppression, those whether have repented of it or those who have just been victimized by it, my remnant, my people, the faithful, I will gather them and set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of, of men. And he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through the gate and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. There's a, there's a way out of this penned-in state. There's a way to freedom. And it's through following the king. God's king. It's Jesus. When, we, when we're repentant, we're brought to see our need for our Savior in Jesus Christ. And God graciously provides our salvation. He died for us to forgive us our sin. He rose again to break through the breach and take us with Him. If we Follow Him. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The church needs to repent of its idolatry. The church needs to confess our sin. We need to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And we also need to be a people who insist on hearing the Word of God all of it. All of it so we can submit to His good order for our lives and not just to be hearers of it, but doers. May God help us and send us more preachers like Micah. And may God help us to be a people who say, yes, preach like that to us. <laughs>